Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He had one of the best nicknames in baseball, the Toy Cannon. And at first, it was a nickname he didn't appreciate. But when he stopped to consider the real meaning of it, it was one he grew to appreciate. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore just how powerful and feared this baseball slugger was, the Toy Cannon. Jimmy Wynn. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. I sure hope everyone out there is healthy and staying safe. Of course, things in our world have been, well, anything but normal. And I offer my apologies for the recent inconsistencies in the release of new episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes. But there are a few on the docket right now, and we're going to begin with the wonderful story of baseball's toy cannon, Jimmy Wynn. A star with the Houston Astros of the mid-1960s and early 1970s, Wynn was a feared slugger. Back when he played, the Astros called the Astrodome home, the eighth wonder of the world. It was one of the most difficult ballparks to hit a home run in. Fly balls just, well, they just didn't travel far in the Astrodome. Crazy when you think about that building now. It looked mammoth. But now, it sits empty next to NRG Stadium where the Houston Texans play. And it looks tiny. But during the days of Jimmy Wynn, it was anything but tiny. In fact, in 1967, when Jimmy Wynn hit an incredible 37 home runs, as a team, the Astros hit just 31 home runs at home and 63 on the road. Wynn hit 37 of the Astros' 93 home runs that year. Originally from Cincinnati, Wynn dreamed of playing for his favorite team, the Cincinnati Reds. And in fact, he was originally signed by the Reds. But Wynn was drafted from the Reds system in the 1962 expansion draft by the then Houston Colt 45s. And a year later, he made his debut hitting 244 with four home runs and 27 RBI in 70 games. Wynn split his year in 1964 between the minors and majors. But with Houston, he made enough of an impression to earn the right to play every day in 1965 when he hit a career-high 275 with 22 home runs and 73 RBI. 
From there, he became a fixture in the Houston lineup until he was traded away after the 1973 season. And we're going to get into all of that with my guest today, Mark Armour, from the Society for American Baseball Research. First, and as always, a couple of reminders. Please, let your family and friends, any sports fan you know, know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. Follow SFH on Twitter, at Sports F Heroes. Check out our page on Facebook. Look for us on Instagram or check out sportsfh.com where you can find more information on my guests, the stars I talk about, and so much more. That's sportsfh.com. And please, if you have a hero that you would like to know more about, let me know and I perhaps can cover him on Sports Forgotten Heroes as well. Okay, without any further ado, let's get to today's show about Jimmy Wynn with my guest, Mark Arnold. Hey Mark, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join me. I'm very honored to be on the show. It's great. Thanks. Awesome. Hey, let's start with where does your interest in baseball come from? Give us a little background on you and the game. Well, I, I came to the game pretty young. Um, I, I started with baseball cards. I, I had baseball cards when I was probably six years old, and I was just fascinated by it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of how my, my brain works. I just like the fact that they be, could be organized, and mm-hmm. I, had no idea what, I had no idea what any of this stuff meant, and then I started to figure out who the teams were, and then I started to figure out what the positions meant, and I gradually, you know, and then, you know, I think I figured that out before I even like owned a glove or anything mm-hmm. like that. And then I started playing. But so by the time I was eight, nine, ten years old, I was like the Uber fan that, that people would drag into parties and say, ask them something. I dare you. you know, I, <laughs> I, I tell people who know me, I tell people who know me now that like, that's when I peaked. Like I've, <laughs> I haven't quite lived up to that sort of, impression people had then where i was like this you know this kid you know this computer um uh, baseball computer but uh <laughs> anyway it's it, it i've I, baseball's base basically watching baseball and then you know playing baseball um you know reading about baseball and, and then you know eventually writing about baseball it's just always something i've enjoyed it's it's just a it's just, just been a fun sort of sideline if it's where i've met a lot of my closest friends um mm-hmm. so yeah it's great so it's it's been it's been a very good passion for me i'm i'm uh i couldn't have picked a better one i don't think mm-hmm. i think you just explained a lot of us i remember my baseball card collection and i will never forget when my father bought me home a baseball card locker and it had two slots on the bottom of the American League and two slots on the bottom of the National League just in case each league expanded. And when Toronto and Seattle came in, I had room for them. But uh, (laughs) I don't know where that locker is now. No, I I agree. I had a locker too. And, and, um, yeah, it's – I I remember – I remember talking to my father. I was a, I was grew up in New England, and my family, you know, Red Sox fans. You know, my grandparents 
Um, so that was kind of, you know, that's what I inherited. And I can remember getting all the Red Sox, you know, players and going to my dad and saying like, can you like show me on, I had a, a piece of card, a big piece of cardboard. I was probably seven, it was probably eight, seven, eight, something like that. I said, can you show me like who the actual starters are? Like who actually played? <laughs> and then I put the players, I would take you know, Carl Yastrzemski and I'd put him in. That, you know, my dad said, this is where left field is. <laughs> and I was like, I was using the cards to just to, to sort of learn the basic, you know, the basic way that the game was played. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, that was absolutely my entree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, you're reminding me of my childhood and how much fun it was. Hey, you've written many, many bios for the Sabre Bio Project, including the one on today's topic, Jimmy Wynn. But aside from the toy cannon, um, I don't know if you could narrow it down, but uh, who are your top three or four favorites and why? Tell us a little something about maybe your top three or four favorites. Yeah, favorite players that you've written a bio on or that I've written a bio on. I see. Um, you know, the guys that, um, I, I actually founded the project. Um, so that was in 2002 and I started out thinking that I was going to do a lot of obscure people. Like I started out by saying like, I'm just going to do the earliest people that, um, that played that were born in Oregon, which is where I've resettled. I've been in Oregon for uh, 25 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, I would start doing a bio on somebody I literally had never heard of before I decided that I was going to do it. And I did that for a little while. And then I, I just decided that that, although it was interesting and I got something out of it, that isn't really where my passion was. My passion was with like with a lot of people was sort of like the players of my childhood. Um, so that's what I started. Th- that's sort of where I got to someone like Wynn, who was a, you know a big star, not where I would were not where I was living, but he was you know somebody that I had cards of certainly. And um, and but I, but I would say if I was going to narrow it down to three, the I I worked on these almost at the same time was the three Alu brothers. Mm, interesting. So I signed up to do you know Felipe Alou, who was at the time managing. And I said, this is this would be great. I'm going to do Felipe Lou. I had an old book is, um, that he had written, like when he was still playing, and and uh, I got you know a lot of lot of articles about him from when he played. And then you know I did did all the usual research. It took me quite a bit of time. And then after I was into it for a while, I, said, I had so much material on his childhood. I said, hey, I'm going to do what if I do a bio on his two brothers? I mean, I've I really have all the stuff about the parents already. You know, that I could sort of trip, I essentially triple dip on all this information. Um, and then it was just sort of a, a little bit of a art to try and figure out how I could sort of tell the same story in a different way in these uh-huh. places. But then I, I just started to fell in love with these three guys. I mean, they're, you know, different play, different personalities. You know, Felipe was very serious and religious and uh, and you know Maddie was really quiet, never said anything. Uh, Felipe was more of a leader mm-hmm. uh, uh, type that was looked up to by all the other Dominican players. And and Jesus was the younger brother who was supposed to be better than both of them. And 
wasn't, of course. <laughs> That's um, what it the, is. Yes, but they always, but they had their each individual stories, and then they had a lot of good quotes from each of them about their brothers, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. And they all, the three of them all kind of, you know, they spread out um, to different teams and had their own sort of very unique stories. But at the same time, it was a very much a family that they all three of them took very seriously. And I just, I just became really, I just kind of fell in love with the whole story, their, their backstory. And then the fact that they all stayed in the game for so long. I mean, um, Felipe, of course, you know, was in, you know, was in the game until just a Mm -hmm. few years ago. And he's probably still, you know, an advisor for somebody. And, and Jesus works for the Red Sox as a Dominican scout and Maddie passed away, but he was still working too. And, you know, so the three of them are just, just legendary in, in, uh, in the Dominican and, um, revered. And I, I always tell people when they talk about like, who, who do you want to be more famous than they are? And that's, that's my answer is the Alouse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, now you, you just said something and I do have it written down here and I wanted to ask you about it. You are the founder or one of the founders of the Sabre bio project, which is just a, an enormous database of biographies on literally thousands of baseball players. What prompted you to want to start the bio project? How difficult was it to get it going? And did you ever imagine that it would be as big and as well-received as it has been? Well, okay. So starting from the beginning, um, at the time, you know, I'd been in Sabre for a number of years by this time and, and it had started to, had started to write a little bit. I'd written a few stories for their journals and in the early 2000s, um, there's the Sabre has a dead ball era committee. And in case your listeners don't know, that covers, you know, the first two decades of the of the 20th century mm-hmm. and they decided that they were going to do some research on that period of baseball and in fact they were going to do these two books of biographies of um the you know, the most prominent players and people from that time there was one book that was uh, on the american league and one book that was in the national league and so there was you know biographies in there of ty cobb and and Christy Mathewson and Honest Wagner and on and on. And they were really well-received books. And I, you know, helped out. I was, you know, just a volunteer. I volunteered. I signed up for, you know, a few, a few stories myself. And it was just really kind of a fun project. And during the course of that time, I actually just had the idea um, and uh, that, you know, maybe instead of sort of limiting ourselves to, you know, the best players from this era or the best players from this team, why don't we have a project where everything goes, you know, every player is equal, um, whether you played one game or whether you were Babe Ruth and, uh, everybody was excited about it right away. The, the difficulty was getting, um, saber, um, just getting sort of a website created that could mm-hmm. handle it. 
mm-hmm. because that was something that you know it had to be on you know Saber's website. It couldn't. I, I wasn't going to you know buy it myself and figure out how to do it. And I was sort of fortunate that we had a couple people that were sort of volunteering at the time uh, around their their website that were just which was just getting going that said, oh yeah, I can put up a prototype for that. And the, the website itself has evolved a few times since mm-hmm. then. Yeah, just the, recently it uh, uh, changed a little as well. Yeah, so the key really was just getting the initial first infrastructure up because no one wants to write bios for something and have us say, oh, don't worry, eventually it'll be up on the web. On mm-hmm. the web. I mean, one of the joys of the project once it got going was to be able to say, you know, you write this story on you know, Johnny Pesky and we will edit it and and fact check it for you and we will get it up we will get it up in like a week mm-hmm. you know which is which for people of you know younger people probably aren't as impressed by that but for people <laughs> that are people that are, that are a bit older i mean you wrote for one of sabers journals and you know you had to have it in like 6 months before the 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 book would come out. Mm-hmm. So people, you know, so, so being able to tell people oh, this, you know, we could turn these things over in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, people just, you know, people got really excited. Did I think it was going to be as big as it turned out? You know, I, I think what I thought was that if I created a, a sort of a process and, and a mechanism that it would just go as fast as Sabre members wanted it to. Like mm-hmm. once I had, once we had the mechanism in place and I had a team of, of editors and, uh, and, and eventually we added a fact-checking phase, you know, once we got that process working, then, you know, we either get one a week or we'd get five a week. I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. And then I just kind of beat the drum for a few years and then it just, it just kind of took off. And I have passed the, I was the chairman of the project for, I think the first 14 years so 2016 i uh i stepped down and the, the people that are running it now are doing fantastically mm-hmm. too it, it's, it's like over 5,000 um biographies there's you know there's been close to 20,000 players there's still there's still you know, a couple still, to write about <laughs> there's still a lot to write about and um as you can imagine i mean you know if if you if one of your listeners were to reel off, you know, their 10 favorite players from, you know, the past, you know, the chances are that, that almost all of them are going to be written. It turns out that in baseball history, I mean, the, if there's 20,000 players, the bottom, and I I mean, no disrespect, but the, the bottom fifth, uh, uh, 15,000 of those are people that played, you know, six games. I mean, the, 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 all of the people that you can think that you can think of are in like the top quarter of people. I mean, as you know, I mean, and it's, and it's getting worse. I mean, most teams now play like they have at least 50 players that mm-hmm. play on the team in any given year. So whoever's writing the biographies of those players, which is going to be, you know, our children, because uh, we we essentially have a Hall of Fame rule, which is that we you you're not eligible to be written about until you've been retired for five years. So hmm. um, so none of the current guy, none of the guys from the 21st century, basically have been written about. Right. But you know, people if if people wanted to do a, a project on the 
you know, on the 2016 Cubs or, or, um, or something, you know, those guys, there's just, there are so many people on that team that people, people don't even know we're on that team because over the course of a year, you, you use so many players. Mm-hmm. Well, at but some anyway, point, th- yeah, at th- some point I, I want to do a podcast and I'm going to do it, um, on guys who made, you know, Moonlight Graham, one game wonders, one hit wonders, one at bat wonders. Yes. And I, I've done some research on it, and I've just got to locate uh, some people to talk about those guys. But it's like you say, there are more players in baseball whom we don't know about than there are whom we could talk about. Yeah. No, and they're all, I mean, I, I played baseball and, um, I played, you know, when I was a kid, I played a lot and I'm not anywhere near as good as the worst guy in the major leagues. (laughs) So I, so I, I say that with a lot of respect. I mean, the guys that I basically have never heard of that play, you know, had get six at bats for the, for the Texas Rangers next year. I mean, they're phenomenal baseball players, but, Mm -hmm. um, it just, you know, it's a tough racket. Sure, sure. So uh, real quickly, before we get into our story about uh, Jimmy Wynn, tell everybody how they can uh, find the bios. Okay. Um, the I guess the best, I, I don't know the URL off the top of my head, but if you search for Saber, S-A-B-R, uh, Biography Project, you'll find it. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, it's got a pretty good interface. Uh, where you can find all the all the people and uh, um, yeah, and if you want to write the bios, you just have to join Saber. That's really the only requirement. So if you join, if you go to saber.org and and sign up for the organization, which is just a blast, mm-hmm. um, and it's just you know baseball crazy nuts um, <laughs> who are interested in, in a variety of things, whether it's whether they're stat people or history people or baseball cards, people, um, you know, we have them all. And, uh, so yeah, join up and, uh, you can, a lot of people that have written biographies for the bio project, um, two years earlier would not have believed that they would be published writers because they didn't realize that, you know, you, you can figure it out. Mm -hmm. You, You can get help and, and it's not, you're not writing a book, you're writing, you know, 2000 words, which is, you know, the equivalent of, you know, maybe four or five pages of a high school term paper. And, um, you know, you can do it if it's something you're, you know, really passionate about. Sure. Sure. Well, hey, Jimmy Wynn. Now, besides the fact that no one else had written a bio about Jimmy Wynn, what prompted you to want to write a bio about the toy cannon? Uh, you know, I guess I, I I may forget exactly what it was, but you know, in in 2014, um, which I believe is is when I, you know, finished the bio, uh, Saber was going to Houston for its annual convention, and uh, Jimmy Wynn was uh, a guy that was around Houston. He, he, you know, he recently passed away, sure. um, but for the last, you know, many number of years of his life, he was a guy that, you know, was around the Astros a lot. He did PR for them and did, you know, community 
relations stuff for them and and whatnot. So I thought it was a pretty reasonable chance that you know Win might end up at the convention. Um, so I decided because he would be in the news, it would be fun to start working on his story. So uh, it was that I think it was that off season before we went to Houston um, that I I worked on it, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I I have a pretty I have a pretty big uh, research library from that period. I have, you know, I have about 30 years of sport magazine in my house Mm -hmm. and, um, and all pretty well cataloged. And that was such a wonderful um, uh, magazine for so many years for baseball. And, uh, and, you know, Sabre offers uh, complete electronic access to the sporting news, um, which was so huge during Wynn's period as well. And, uh, and, you know, between those two and Wynn has a memoir and, uh, mm-hmm. I just, you know, got, I sort of got to work and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, investigated the story a bit and decided I really thought this was a pretty fun dude, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, with, you know, just enough, just enough, uh, color and controversy to make it, you know, not boring yep. and um and you know he's you know beloved enough that i figured people would end up reading it um and and they did i think uh it was it actually was nice i mean because it got a little publicity because it turns out that in in houston i'm not in houston but in houston he's he's a pretty beloved character um, sure he was one I of just, the yeah, he was one of the uh, Astros' uh, first real superstars, and he, he, you know, he wasn't exactly huge. I think he was like five foot nine, a hundred and sixty-five to a hundred and seventy pounds, but he packed a lot of wallop in that body. Where did his power come from? Yeah, I mean, he he claims that it was just, you know, taking hours of batting practice every day. I mean, he, he credited his dad. He said his dad threw to him forever and that he had a, he had access to a pitching machine in the early sixties, um, which apparently wasn't far from his house and he would just hit and hit and hit. And the guy, you know, he was pretty muscle bound. Um, he was built a little bit like Joe Morgan. He might've been a little thicker. Um, but Morgan was also a guy that was, you know, not a big guy that had power. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wynn had more power. Wynn was known at the time as somebody that would hit. He was, I mean, it's hard to even imagine this now, but he was, he was thought of like the way we think of Aaron judge. I mean, he was the guy that hit the, you know, the 490 foot home runs. Like and he was only five guys. foot nine. Yeah. Right. He was, he was huge. I mean, uh, in terms of his, his, I mean, his power was huge. Um, and if you saw a picture of him and he, there was no context, he looks like he, he's bigger, mm-hmm. but the, the time that you realize he was not bigger is when you see him standing next to other people. And then you realize, Oh, okay. But if you just <laughs> see him standing out on the grass, because he looks like, you know, if you just see him only, he looks like he could be a linebacker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's got big shoulders and big arms, but he's just kind of like a linebacker shrunk down you know mm-hmm. um so yeah he had he had the upper body 
He didn't like it when people referenced his size, did he? He took offense to it. Yeah, no, his, so he's, he was sometime in the late sixties, a Houston uh, reporter referred to him as the toy cannon, which is of course a nickname that lives, lived on the rest of his life. And uh, Wynn didn't like the nickname uh, because of the toy part. I mean, that clearly the, the word toy is because he's little and cannon is because, you know, he has all the power. Mm-hmm. And um, he thought it was, you know, kind of making fun of him. And then eventually he came to realize that, no, actually, this is a big compliment. And uh, and ultimately, he, you know, when his memoir came out, he called it Toy Cannon. I think by that time, he realized that that was, mm-hmm. you know, going to help him. Um, it's a cool nickname. It's a really cool nickname. I mean, it, it really just fits. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting enough that, you know, no one's ever going to be the toy cannon again, right? And you can't have another. <laughs> yeah, you you can. can't have another toy cannon. I mean, you can have another babe, or you can have another. Um, I don't know, like another know, hammer. There's a lot. Yeah, you can have another hammer, but you can't have another toy cannon. It's yeah, just no, too. It's, it's too singular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, when you look back at his career, his most prolific year came in 1967 when he whacked 37 home runs for the Astros and he hit 249 with 107 ribbies. I think his next best season came years later, 1974, when by this time he was with the Dodgers and he hit 271 with 32 homers and 108 RBIs. So let me ask you. Why those are well, those are the only two years he hit 30 plus homers, and yeah, he played in the Astrodome. But why did he have such a reputation for his power, and how much did playing in the Astrodome do you think affect his numbers? I think it affected him a lot. I, I think he had he had a couple of years where he led the league in home runs, uh, on the road by a player, um, and um, and also, uh, the other thing that younger people have to realize is that 37 home runs used to be a lot more than it seems like today, mm-hmm. especially in the 1960s, um, you know, when entire leagues were hitting, you know, 235, um, you know, Wynn was just a, a massively great hitter um, be, at a time when people weren't hitting like that. Um, so that that 1967 season you mentioned was just a tremendous season. And the other thing that he was great at, which did not help his reputation because people didn't think this way back then, is he he drew a ton of walks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of those things that people wouldn't necessarily have commented on at the time, other than maybe saying like, well, maybe because he's short, he's getting walks, much like Morgan, his teammate, who was also you know, getting a lot of walks, mm-hmm. but, you know, in fact, that was just, that's a huge part of, of wins value. He, you know, the, the thing that I thought you were going to say, which uh, about the fact that of these two great seasons, that are seven years apart is that he did, it, his numbers do appear to be up and down. You know, he, he, he did have, I'm not sure exactly why that is, this is, I mean, he, he, you know, he never had really high batting averages was of course were things that people used to judge players back then. Mm-hmm. And he did, and he did strike out. Um, 
and maybe that combination, the fact that he wasn't really a contact hitter, meant that he was maybe more prone to going into slumps. But he certainly had a couple of years, you know, he had years sort of in the middle of what should mm-hmm. have been his prime, where you just think like, ah, what happened there? Right. Um, you know, but if he had, if you take that 67 and 74 seasons that you mentioned, and you sort of fill that in with a bunch of seasons in between there that were, even if they weren't quite at that level, if they were 90% at that level, then, you know, we're having a different conversation. I think, you know, maybe right. he's in, 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 in 68, he hit 26 in 69. He did. He hit uh he hit 33 and he led the league in walks with 148 in 70. He hit 27. Um, he did not fare that well in 71. He hit just seven, but 72, he hit 24, 73, 20, and then he went out to L.A. in that first year, 74 in L.A., he cranked 32 home runs. Yeah, he was. that was a big thing. He, he went to L.A., and they won the pennant that year. Mm-hmm. And and, um, and Wynn was probably the biggest, you know, the biggest reason why. I mean, he was the guy that sort of vaulted them from being a good team to, you know, finally finally catching the Reds, which they only did once in that you know, in that period. Um, but, uh, um, I think at the time people credited win with being the difference. Mm-hmm. It's funny when you think of the 74 Dodgers, you don't think of Jimmy Wynn. you think of Garvey, you think of Lopes, you think of Russell, you think, of, you know, uh, uh Ron say and right. Jaeger, you don't think of Jimmy Wynn, and he was really, um, their big offensive threat. Yeah, no, I think he was Wynn a big was power the threat. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was their best offensive player on that team, and you know maybe their best regular player. And of course, they had they always had good pitching, but the difference is that all those other guys stayed around forever. Right. Uh, Win really, he just had two years in L.A., um, whereas you know, Gar- the guys like Garvey, you know, he was there for a decade, and and most of those other guys were too. Because those those teams won again, of course, in seventy seven and seventy eight. Mm-hmm. And Win was long gone, and those other guys were still there. So right. I think that's the main reason. When Win was just you know there for the one of those years, but what a, what a year that was. I mean, mm-hmm. that was just uh, that was something. Now you spoke about his father for 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 a brief moment before. Tell me a little bit more about his father and and his upbringing and how good an athlete and how he coached Jimmy's teams. Uh, tell tell us a little bit about his dad. So, you know he 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 always spoke very well about his parents. His 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 dad was a uh, garbage man, and I say that um, that way because that's what. Win always said, and as a matter of fact, he even has a part in his book where he says, you know, today they would call him a sanitation worker, but to me, he was a garbage man, and I don't consider garbage man to be anything to be ashamed of. You know, we need people that do what my dad did, and um, so I'm going to call him a garbage man because I feel like that's a fine way to make a living. Um, and his his par- he and his parents were, you know, they had. A, they had a great, you know, family up. You know, he had a great family upbringing. His parents were, and he remained very close uh, until you know the end of their lives. And mm-hmm. um, so, he, so he was fortunate in that way that he had a very solid sort of upbringing. His dad, you know, he always talked about how much time his dad spent with him. His dad uh, played a lot of baseball with with Win, um, 
and Wynn was a, you know, this is kind of a broken record for when you talk about major league baseball players, but he would, you know, Wynn was a great, uh, he was, he was great at every sport. He was mm-hmm. a great basketball player, he was a great football player. Uh, he ran, he ran track. Um, so he was always, um, you know, great at everything. And he went to a school that had a lot of, you know, athletes that went on to play professional and other sports. Uh, he grew up in Cincinnati. I should, should have mentioned that near Crosley field. Right. And, you know, always wanted to be a red. Um, and that's who drafted of, him. He he was drafted by the reds, but his mother insisted that he go to college, but Two years later is when he was drafted by the Reds, and he played for Tampa in the Class D Florida State League. So he he sort of realized a dream, at least at first, that he would be playing for the Cincinnati Reds. How big a deal was that? Yeah, the, the th- yeah, and the, the th- so from you know roughly the end of World War Two until 1965 when the amateur draft began. Uh, Major League Baseball had a number of mechanisms to try and keep bonuses down. And and they had, you know, they had bonus baby rules and a few different times they tried that. And what was going on in the early 60s is they had this rule. They didn't want people to have to stockpile too many minor league players so they had a rule basically that said once you've played a single season with your in your organization if they don't put you on the 40-man roster then you can be drafted by another team as long as they put you on the 40-man roster so it, it keeps teams from sort of having you know you know, 80 guys in their system that are, you know, potential major leaguers. So that's what happened to win. He was not protected after his first year. He, he, mm-hmm. They didn't put him on the 40 man roster. So Houston, who obviously had, who was a fairly new, you know, they just come into the league um, said, I will right, we'll take win. And that's how he, that's how he, um, he left the reds and he didn't want to, he was a reds fan. Uh, he sort of idolized Frank Robinson and Veda Pinson and all those guys because he, he grew up there, but mm. um, that was the rules. He ended up going to Houston. And that was a big break for him because he it wasn't long before he found himself in, I think at that time, they were still called the Colt 45s, um, or that might have been right around the first year that they were called the Astros, but he found himself in their lineup pretty quickly. Yeah, no, it was. It, it, it absolutely was. Other than the ballpark problem, which I think you know probably affected him quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean the Reds were generally pretty loaded when it came to position players in that period, and and of course that would remain so for another fifteen years. So in order for him to play, he would have had to beat out you know Pinson or Frank Robinson or or uh, or you know, Darren Johnson or somebody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, I guess he technically was an infielder at that time, but eventually became an outfielder. Um, but it was a little tougher. Whereas when he went to Houston, of course, Houston didn't really have much of anything. Um, so, um, you know, he, he got to, uh, you know, they moved him to center field and 
with a couple of bumps along the way in terms of getting settled. Once he got settled, then he mm-hmm. was, you know, the best, he was their best player within a couple of years. Why, why was he changed from infielder to outfielder? You know, it's funny. He was fat. He was a fast guy. He, he stole in, in his best years, he stole you know a fair number of bases, but he was never considered to be a, really a great defensive player for, for whatever reason. And I think that his managers in Houston just thought that, um, you know, they just had guys. I mean, they had Morgan by then and they had Sonny Jackson and they probably just decided that, you know, these guys are just better, you know, defensive players than uh, and win. And if he's got to play the outfield. So um, that's why they moved him. I, I think he was probably surprised because, and a lot of that was like the little guy syndrome. You put the little guys in the infield. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, they put him in center field and he, he took to it. And then, you know, when they, you know, and then he got that sort of center fielder sort of ego where he kind of didn't want to ever leave center field. So um, I think, I don't think there was anything to it other than the bodies they had on hand. Mm-hmm. And he had a little bit of a rocky start, and he was sent back to the minors after he made his debut with 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 Houston. But he made it for good in '65, and that was the year the Astrodome opened. And like you said, he was playing center field, and at least with the bat, he drew comparisons to some pretty hefty ball players. So. Tell us a little bit about his game. How good was Jimmy Wynn? Yeah, I mean, he was compared to someone like Willie Mays. I mean, when I say compared to, I mean, people, yeah, it wasn't like they were saying he's as good as Willie Mays. It was more like people thought he could be sort of Willie Mays light, you know, like, uh, you know, 90% of Mays' power and 90% of his speed and, you know, a fair defensive outfielder. Um, he was, he was a quirky, uh, he had a sort of a quirky skill set because he didn't have the skills that I think Houston thought he was going to have. Um, and what I mean by that is that as a small ish, uh, center fielder in the 1960s, I think that what Houston expected he was going to settle into was a guy that, you know, hit the ball to all fields and hit, you know, 310 and stole a bunch of bases as opposed to a guy that hit 255 with 30 home runs. Um, so I think part of his problem in his early years was that the Astros, and I, I'm not saying it's only the Astros, I think other teams might have done the same thing at that time but the Astros I think were particularly bad about this is that especially when Harry Walker got there, I think that they just decided that they didn't want him swinging the way he did. You know, he was a free swinger. He swung, he, he used to pride himself that when he was up there, he attacked the ball. Mm-hmm. He tried to, he tried to hit every pitch, every, every pitch as hard and as far as he possibly could. Mm-hmm. And that, that was his approach. And he would, he was very honest about that. And I think, Harry Walker would look at his low-ish batting average and and high strikeout totals, and decided that that wasn't what he wanted. He wanted a guy that hit like you know Matty Alou or mm-hmm. something, 
Mm-hmm. And that was not what Wynn was going to do. And I think it took a while for that to work itself out. And he never really got along with Walker. Yeah, we're going to get um, into Walker in, 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 in a minute. Um, okay. But I love where you're going. And, and you already talked a little bit about his speed. Yeah, his first full season, he stole 43 bases. And for his career, he had over 200. So it's not like he was slow. But 43 his first year... And after that, he never really stole a lot of bases again. I mean, the next, uh, in, in 1970, he had 24. In 69, he had 23. So what happened? Why was he um, slowed down on the base paths? He didn't even attempt as many as 43 stolen bases in a season. Why did the Astros slow him down? Yeah, I'm not really sure about that, uh, whether that was because he didn't want to do it um, or um, or whether they just you know couldn't resolve the fact that they had a home run hitter that could run. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think I know that. I don't know that story. I know when in his book, he talks a lot about, you know, the game, the game that he wanted to have versus the game that he had. But he didn't talk about steals because I don't think that was necessarily as important to him as the fact, as the fact that he wanted to hit, he he wanted to hit with more power. Mm -hmm. What about his game in the outfield, his defense? Was he good or was he substandard in the field? And how did his sometimes, I, I don't know, reckless abandon affect him? And I think I'm referring to the incident on the ball that Dick Allen hit. Where he he broke his did he broke his he broke his arm I yeah think. yeah yeah that was in sixty six maybe yeah yeah um, he I, I don't know the answer to the question although I can tell you that his reputation as an outfielder was just that he was adequate that he was not costing them anything but that he was not particularly great i mean he and certainly he had managers he had a couple of problems one he had a couple of different managers that thought that he occasionally wasn't that interested in playing the outfield so he would kind of like get bad jumps or you know maybe not run as fast as they thought maybe you know so he definitely had a reputation whether earned or not of somebody that wasn't always giving it his all when it came mm-hmm. to the outfield and secondly, he definitely had the, you know, they, they, there was always talk that they wanted to get a defensive center fielder um, to sort of play there, you know, a Cesar Geronimo type who in fact they had for a while mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. traded away, but, and then move, and then so they could play win in left field or right field. Like they, they didn't, they thought that that was an oversell for his ability center field. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely the reputation that he had amongst his his own managers and also other managers. How how hard was it for him to be playing center field in a place like the Astrodome? I mean, how tough was it to play there, the AstroTurf, you know, um, on as a defensive ball player? Uh, 
offensively, the balls didn't fly that far, so it had to have an effect on his game at the plate. Tell us about the Astrodome and just how hard it was to play there in the field and hit for power. Yeah, I don't think that we can really relate to any of this today because I just think that that era, um, first of all, it was a very difficult era for hitters at all uh, compared to the last 25 years, especially, but also there were, there was such a big variety in, in different ballparks in terms of how they played that, yeah, we can park adjust people's totals and say, well, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy Wynn had played, you know, in a neutral park, this is what he would have done. But we, the fact is you don't really know, you, you don't really know whether playing in that kind of environment 81 times a year doesn't just sort of affect you in other ways um, in terms of, you know, the, whether slumps become harder to get out of uh, because you have this disadvantage, uh, whether it's harder on your knees because obviously, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like the kind of services we have now. And it, this isn't just a win problem. This is a problem for other people that sort of uh, happened to come up in a system that was not, really what their game was meant for and this mm-hmm. is absolutely true this is absolutely true for jimmy Wynn. he's like the poster child for that mm-hmm. you know, he couldn't he couldn't have picked a worse uh, <laughs> you know, if he'd come up with the cubs or, or something who were um you know also a somewhat of a sad sack team at the time that he would have joined them i mean that could have been he could add an entirely different career um and that's true of, of probably most other teams, but he he, he couldn't have picked a worse team um, to have joined. And I just can't. I, I I assume that it just it affected him. It affected him quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Now, like you said, um, he had an idea of how to attack the ball at the plate. He was basically all out. And he wanted to hit for power, but he ran into problems with a few managers and the biggest being, as you had said, Harry Walker, who thought Jimmy should approach hitting in a different manner. Talk a little more about Jimmy's idea on how he should hit and how guys like Walker tried to change him. And what about Harry Walker? It wasn't just Jimmy that had some difficulty with him. Joe Morgan didn't have many nice things to say about Harry Walker either. Yeah, I mean, Morgan's a big part of the win story because they essentially came up together. Um, They were teammates the whole time together. They were good friends. And they were both little, uh, you know, for their time, they were small of stature. Morgan was probably even shorter than Wynn, uh, but also had a lot of power and a lot of speed. There's a lot of overlap in their in their skill set, the two players. Uh, and Morgan is the one who sort of spoke about this in the most sort of consistently and articulately, but he, Wynn, essentially in his memoir, basically said, yes, this is true. This is what happened to me too. Um, Walker was a guy who was somewhat small himself and played, you know, in the 1940s, he didn't have the kind of talent that, that, uh, 
that Morgan or Wynn has, but he had, he had a few good years. And he was known as a guy who sort of slapped the ball the other way. He was left-handed, slapped mm-hmm. the ball the other way and ran like hell to first base and got a lot of infield hits and, and bloop singles. And, and that's kind of what his game was. And he, um, he kind of wanted his team to play that way. And especially the smaller people, mm-hmm. the little guys that he decided that's the kind of player they should be. And he, was pretty blunt with Morgan uh, and he was pretty blunt with, with wind. He would, he would say, you know, like, uh, I don't want you to hit, hit a ball. You know, if any, if any fly ball that's hit to the left of the center fielder, which would be, you know, his pull side, um, he would yell at him about it. You know, basically <laughs> um, that's not what you should be doing. You should try and go up the middle of the other way and not, not in the air. And Morgan thought this was, you know, bullshit and, and, uh, didn't get along with him. And Morgan was a bit of a, he was willing to speak his mind, probably even more than Wynn. And, uh, and Wynn sort of the same. And Morgan believed, oh, and another interesting example is that, um, Walker managed the Pirates just before he got to Houston, his last job had been with the pirates. And in 1966, he, he had a guy on his team, Matty Alou and Matty Alou came over from the giants and had never really done anything. And he got to Pittsburgh and um, Walker platooned him in center field with uh, Manny Mota in 1966. And, um, Alou hit 340 and won the batting title. Wow. And he and he hit 340 by doing what Walker wanted. And to many people, Walker was sort of treated at that time like he was sort of a genius because he had he had turned Matty Lou around. He had he had taken Matty Lou, who was again, he had hit 230 the year before for the Giants, wasn't playing that much. He was like the fifth outfielder. Um and he got to Houston. I mean, he got to Pittsburgh and he became this great absolute singles hitter. I mean, he was not no power, uh, didn't walk, um, but he hit line drive singles, bunts, and he hit 340. And then he hit he hit over 330 for four straight years. Um, so it worked. What Walker got alluded to do worked. And he the story goes, tried to do this when he got to Houston a couple years later, he tried to do the same thing with, uh, with Morgan and Wynn and, uh, Morgan sort of famously like one year he'd led the league in sacrifice hits in like 1970 or something, which is just absurd that you would have a guy with Morgan's skill set who's, you know, technically one of the best offensive players in baseball, mm-hmm. which he became as soon as he left Walker. And, um, and he was having him bunting. He was having win bunting. He was having <laughs> win give himself up to move the, move the runner on to second base or whatever. So this was just, it was a, it was a type of game that Walker had had some success with and he picked the wrong guys. And Morgan later said in his autobiography that came out in the nineties that Walker didn't like black players that that was Mm. basically um, any more. These are Morgan's words that he was a racist, um, that he was bad to win. 
he was bad to Marty Martinez, that he was bad to Don Wilson, um, and he was bad to uh, Morgan. And mm. um, and um, when in his memoir, which came out, you know, fifteen years later, uh, essentially agreed um, mm. that that's. I mean, there are there are certainly uh, people like Bill White wrote a book that came out about ten years ago, and White knew um knew walker in st louis um and white just tells a different story that he you know he had some problems with some some players because he you know he didn't really he wasn't a good people person but that he you know he wasn't that way and they and white and he were lifelong friends so mm-hmm. I, I mentioned that only to say that who knows i don't right, know the, right i don't know and, the answer is what and is what I'm and 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 Harry had a brother, Dixie Walker, who was a coach on the Dodgers when Jimmy got to the Dodgers, and Dixie basically said, "Hey, heard you had some problems with my brother. Forget everything he told you. Go ahead and hit the ball over the fence." Right, right. And I think that with a lot of people, I mean, again, I don't want to. I, I don't. I absolutely do not wish to. Um, try and mitigate anyone's experience. I'm sure it was hell for any uh, black player that was playing in the major leagues at that time. I'm Mm -hmm. sure there was a lot of obstacles. It was very difficult. And I absolutely completely believe that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also probably true that guys like the Walker brothers um, evolved and they, you know, when, Maybe Dixie Walker, because Dixie Walker has his own problems in the 40s with Jackie mm-hmm. Robinson, sure. uh, allegedly. And by the time Wynn got to him, it was 25 years later. And um, and Walker was probably a different man. And uh, and then it might have happened to Harry, too. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, um, I, I completely believe that it, this affected Wynn's career because I think what Wynn needed – it's easy to say this now, but I think what Wynn needed was a a better ballpark. But short of that, is he needed a manager that just let essentially let Jimmy be Jimmy, and and just sort of appreciated what he had, and just said, "Go play baseball and hit," because he could hit. I mean, dude could hit. Well, I, I think there might have been another thing that that affected Jimmy as well. I mean, the Astros—they were not a great team by any stretch of the imagination back then. And how did their weak hitting team and the fact that they really outside of Joe Morgan and Morgan was gone, they couldn't put anyone dangerous in the lineup behind Jimmy. You know, they couldn't protect him. Um, How did that affect maybe the types of pitches he saw? You know, maybe he could have been better had he had a little bit more support in the lineup. Yeah, I mean that's certainly true. Um, that, that's that's you know it's sort of an unknown, and it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing because he, he how um, they didn't have power, and some of that was because they chose not to have power. Um, and I'll give you another example: uh, John Mayberry. So they had John Mayberry, who was a teammate of uh, who was cu- trying to come up on those teams in 70 and 71 and 72. And apparently from what I've read, um, they tried to get him to hit the other way too. Hmm. And of course they ended up trading him 
because he wasn't he you know he had a few call-ups and he and he hadn't really succeeded and and then his first year with Kansas City which is really the first year he got a, a, a real shot um he became an you know an excellent player for several years and he and then meanwhile um back in Houston um they were complaining they didn't have any power so you know some of that was was you know it, there was a time when they had you know Morgan and Wynn and John Maryberry and Bob Watson uh, on their team and didn't have any power. Yeah, I mean, so, you look at like, uh, I'm looking at it right here, 1968. They had uh, John Bateman was their catcher. He had four home runs. Rusty Staub was first base. He had six. Dennis Menke played second. He had six. Hector Torres was the shortstop. Back then, shortstops didn't hit home runs, except if your name was Ernie Banks. He, he hit one. Doug Rader hit six. Bob Watson had all of two. Norm Miller yeah. had all of six. And then there's Jimmy Wynn with 26. They had no power on that team. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, a lot of that was a different, it was the Astrodome and 1968, you picked the worst possible year. Uh, for hitting. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a difficult time. And the fact that when, I mean, you know, if, if, if you hit 25 home runs in that environment, then you're a power, you're a, a, a big time power hitter, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. which win was, I mean, he, he had as much power as anybody in the national league at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately for him and, and uh, arguably for us, he, you know, he he did it in a time and a place that I think masked his his skills. Mm-hmm. Was he combative at all? Was he was he a um, you know? Obviously, he had uh, th- there was a little bit of friction between he and Harry Walker, as we discussed. But was he combat uh, combative or was he a laid back guy? What was his demeanor like? Uh, you know. <sighs> That's a, there were certainly you know, throughout his time in Houston, I think it got a little bit worse in the sense that he was he was considered to be a little bit of a malcontent, um, meaning that he was a guy that, you know, like was was not easy to manage um, in some of this, you know, how much how much of this is Walker and how much of it is him is you know hard to say at this point but he certainly had a reputation as like he he wasn't like dick allen exactly but he was somebody that you know maybe teams weren't lining up to try and get Mm -hmm, because he Um, also had some difficulties at home didn't he yeah he did and and yeah he had a he had a physical altercation with his wife um and i'm not i'm not the, the details of that are a little bit murky it's not clear who who was who was the, the person who was the physical? Because uh, Alan actually got stabbed right. um, in this in this altercation, um, which I think maybe I don't think it was a terrible stabbing. I mean, I guess all stabbings are bad, but I mean, it wasn't like he, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like he was carried off in you know an ambulance or anything. But um, he did have to have you know a procedure to fix him. It was in the stomach, um, but. Uh, 
yeah, I, I, he had a he was divorced in the early seventies. He was divorced again a few years after that. He he lost touch with his kids who were from his first his first marriage, and he has accepted he he later accepted you know blame for a lot of that. Um, and then you know towards the end of his life, or not even towards the end of his life, but later in his life, he uh, reconciled with his kids and had great relationships mm-hmm. with them but there was certainly a time when yeah i think his home life was not easy for him it was not providing him with um you know relaxation and solace let's just say that mm-hmm. how did his game change after the astros dismissed walker and brought in leo derosier um he didn't last that long with derosier so they, they brought in derosier I guess maybe, yeah, I guess he was there, I don't know if it was a half a year or a year and a half. I'm, I'm not, I don't remember now whether DeRocher came in. Because Wynn left after 73, and uh, I forget which year um, DeRocher got to to Houston. But um, I think it was pretty similar. I think I think DeRocher was like Walker in the sense of him being you know, an aggressive kind of a manager. Um, I think he got along with him. Okay. I don't think he had any personal issues with him. Um, I think he was traded ultimately because they just, you know, didn't think he was, I think they thought that he wasn't as good a player as he had been. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of bounced back with LA, but um, I think he got along fine with DeRocher. Was he upset by the trade? to LA was he did he welcome it was he surprised I don't think he was surprised and I don't think he was upset about it either I think he was pretty positive I mean, he'd been to Houston for a long time but I think by that time I think that things had I think he had kind of had it you know by that point I think he was not you know despite what happened to him late in life when he became almost like Mr. Astro mm-hmm. I don't think was I don't think he was hugely popular in Houston by that time because, you know, um, he was a sort of a star that maybe wasn't what he had been. And they had, you know, they had a lot of young players at that time, like Cesar Cedeno, who was a real star. And, um, and Wynn was kind of yesterday's news. I don't think people were that upset about it. They got Claudestine, who was a pitcher and, I think they wanted to sort of go in a different direction. I don't think Wynn was surprised, and um, and I think he was happy to get to L.A., especially because what he always wanted was a manager that let him play and, and let him play his game. And uh, that's what Walter Alston did. I mean, that's the way Wynn tells it is he told him, you got to play center field every day, and you're going to hit third, and you're going um, to hit. And, 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 he, and he did. I mean, he really felt welcome in Los Angeles. Uh, we mentioned it at the top. He got there in 74. He hit 32 home runs, knocked in 108. He hit 271. He even stole 18 bases, made the all-star team. The Dodgers go on. They play the A's in the World Series. And then 75, he gets off to this really good start and then he slumped. I mean, he made the all-star team in 75, and then he slumped. He hit 248 with 18 homers and 58 ribbies. What happened? 
I'm not sure. I mean, whether there was an injury, but yeah, something happened in the middle of the summer and he basically never recovered from that. So his, his, his years as a star was, you know, a year and a half in LA. And then at that point, he didn't have much left. He had another half year in LA, which, um, as he said, was, was subpar. Um, definitely had a big drop off from the all-star game where, where he started, started in center field for the NL and, um, and didn't have anything left after that. And the, the Dodgers were kind of, you know, in the race with, with, uh, Cincinnati, but Cincinnati ended up, you know, blowing them away. They ended up winning, I think by 20 games. Uh, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. that was the, the really, the big, you know, the, 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 the sort of the pinnacle of the big red machine uh-huh. that year and they couldn't end up competing. And then after that, you know, when just kind of bounced around to a few other teams, but it was never really the same player. Yeah. It was really weird because the following season, 76, he ends up in Atlanta. He hits 17 home runs, you know, well, not might that, that might not be a huge number considering he was playing in Fulton County. Um, he had 66 ribbies he only hit 207, but interestingly enough, he led the National League in walks that year with 127, and he had an OPS of 744. I mean, it's not like it was the worst when you line it all up, but he was really done by this point, and he was 34 years old. Yeah, he did not age well, and and it's hard to say, you know, looking back, you know, 45 years later, it's hard to say exactly why that is. But um, for a guy that had, you know, this, you know, just almost like a Mr. Olympia body, um, it, you know, in his 20s, uh, he did not he did not age well. I don't know if it's I don't know if he had any overall issues or he didn't you know, he wasn't a fitness guy or whatever. I mean, it's not like he got heavy that I can I can think um but you know he definitely had a significant drop off um in the early in his early 30s and uh and and then you know faded away mhm well you know mark like many ball players he bounced around a bit afterwards and finally retired after the 77 season you mark how would you sum up the career of jimmy Wynn? Um, he, you know, he had a fine career that he should be very, very proud of. Um, he, uh, um, you know, if you just, if you just go through his resume, he just a bunch of all-star teams, um, you know, hit if you know, a couple hundred home runs, um, stole a bunch of bases, you know, played center field, had, was in the world series, you know, he, he did a lot. He accomplished a lot. He was absolutely, he was, he was a star player, not for 15 years. Like, uh, like, you know, people were thought, thought he might be, but he was a star player for six or seven years, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a fine, I mean, he's, you know, like I was saying at the beginning, like making the major leagues is hard and being a star player is, is even harder. And, and you know, without question, he was one of the, you know, he's in the top, you know, 5% of, of players that have played in the majors, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, not a hall of famer. He had sort of, he was a hall of famer sort of at his best. He just didn't, 
sustain. If he'd had, you know, four more years, like 74, um, you know, maybe he'd be a Hall of Famer, but he was a, you know, he was a fun guy. I mean, he was, you know, if you follow baseball, you know, no matter when you grow up, if you grew up in the, today, you can, you'll someday tell all your, you know, you tell your grandkids about Francisco Lindor and, and, uh, Mike Trout and Mookie Betts, but you know, the, it's the, the Jimmy Wynn types who, you know, are, are kind of the ones that, that, you know, every generation is going to have those star players. And, uh, and Wynn is a guy that just was in that class for a handful of years. And, and uh, I think, you know, the fact that he was so beloved in Houston, um, I think is an indication that, you know, he was, you know, he he got to a point where he really appreciated what he had done um, and could be proud of it, which is all he can ask for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did stay in the game and he reunited or reconciled with the Astros a couple years later. How did the city of Houston embrace him and talk about the retiring of his number 24? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I... <laughs> I think that these kind of things happen. I mean, he, he, he left the game. I think he was, it was not easy for him um, to leave the game. I think he didn't have a lot of other skills um, at the time. He wasn't, he, he never got, you know, destitute or anything, but he clearly was in a position for a decade or 15 years where he just didn't know what he was going to do. And, um, was just trying to make a living. He didn't have, you know, a million dollars in the bank or anything, but it wasn't until he finally reached a point when he's around 50 in the early nineties, I guess, where he started to get involved with like the Texas uh, baseball hall of fame or the sports hall of fame. And um, he eventually ended up, you know, reconciling with the Astros and then getting more involved with, and all the Astros wanted to do was to be Jimmy Wynn. You know, that's all. That's all they really asked of him. And he was really good at that. And he would show up everywhere. And uh, I met him at the Sabre convention. He he did come and, and I did meet him, but just briefly. But um, you get the impression that when he was around, people were laughing and smiling. And he just became really popular. And he's one of those people that became, I think, more popular as an, you know, as a 50 year old. Uh, looking back on his career than he was even when he was actually playing for mm-hmm. the Astros mm-hmm. uh, because he changed, I think um, he became, you know, it's, it's a little bit, I mean, it's not the same, but it's sort of, it reminds me of sort of Dick Allen in, in mm-hmm. Philadelphia and, you know, they booed him out of the city and, um, and now, you know, he just goes to the park and he gets standing ovation. So, um, so I think, Part of it is the player sort of recognizing how lucky they are to, you know, play major league baseball. And, and part of it is the city realizing like, you know what, look at the, look at that career. It's pretty Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. And you're, yeah, he became, he became a guy, like, I don't want to say mascot because that makes it sound, (laughs) I'm denigrating An ambassador. Yeah. He was a guy that people, they would like to invite to make the fans happy. So he, he's, throughout first pitches or show up at the, at the, you know, at the Kiwanis club, um, 
to uh, to talk to potential season ticket holders or or whatever. And uh, and and people liked the guy. He was always sort of, from what I understand, he was just the guy who, um, you know, would just smile and get people to smile. Mm-hmm. So not bad. Hey, in your research about Jimmy Wynn, what surprised you the most? What did you look back and say, "Wow, that's pretty cool." I guess um you know the the record you know the this this statistical record of what he did and what he didn't do I kind of knew um what I probably didn't know um uh, because when he was with Houston I was you know this is when I was like 5 6 7 8 so it wasn't like I was you know an expert of what what was going on or even knew who Jimmy Wynn was when he came up um but you know he was i certainly he he was still a star when i was starting to follow baseball but what i did not know um because i don't know if it's because it just wasn't you know wasn't a national thing was how much of a power hitter he was not not just that he i knew how many home runs he was hitting but i didn't realize he was hitting balls up on the railroad tracks at crosley mm-hmm. i mean he, he's sort of famous at the time for hitting home runs as far as anyone, as far as Frank Howard, as far as Harmon Killebrew. And that surprised me. Uh, um, I thought he was just a guy that hit home runs. Not, not that he was as powerful, quite as powerful as that. And um, that's, that's pretty impressive. I mean, just, it'd be like, he was, he, he probably, he's not as big. He's not as big as Jose Altuve. I mean, in terms of size, Wow, he might be, he might be taller than Altuve, but he's not as I don't think he's as big as Altuve. Wow. Which is which is kind of bizarre, right? Because he can and launch Altuve, the ball. And Altuve can launch the ball too. Yeah. And yeah. I think Mookie Betts is is basically win size. Um and you know, of course Mookie Betts can hit thirty home runs too. So it's it certainly happens. Um but um, yeah, I mean, um, if I uh, had been able to sit down with him before he he died, I would have said you had a hell of a career. Very cool, very cool, Mark. Uh, you working on any bi- any other bios now? I am not. Um, I'm not retired from it, but at the moment, I am not working on any bios. Okay. Hope to get back to it at some point. Okay. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your day to spend with me, to spend with fans of Sports Forgotten Heroes. This has been a terrific hour. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. Well, I appreciate what you do. And uh, not much going on in the world these days. Um, So uh, it's fun to talk baseball. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great. You have a wonderful day. In the end, when you consider the way he was welcomed back to Houston and had his number retired, I think it's fair to say that Jimmy Wynn was a hero in the Houston community and a hero to thousands, if not millions, of Houston Astros and baseball fans everywhere. For his career, Wynn hit 291 home runs, knocked in 964, and ended his career with a solid 
250 batting average, 225 stolen bases, and an OPS of 802. Not phenomenal numbers, but when you consider where he played and the lineup around him, Jimmy Wynn definitely had a remarkable career. Thanks for joining me today, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.